0: We chose the title Listening to Natural Law and uh, one of the ways that the Dhamma is translated is natural law. So the Dhamma is the, the truth of the way things are. It's, uh, it's not something that's superimposed, it's not a, it's not a dogma or a, a belief system, but it's, it's uh, pointing to the, the truth of how things already are that we miss we miss because we're so caught up in uh, being somebody, doing something, much of the time. And, um, you know, when we look at nature, so we're living in San Francisco where the uh, the seasons are much of a muchness. You get, you get foggy summers and then maybe bright autumns and a little bit of rain in the, in the winter few flowers in the spring, but it's, it's pretty samey. And then here, there's the very clear um, sign of fall moving to winter. Probably in winter, I guess, is snow. So then when we look outside, there's a teaching going on there. There's a teaching of change. There's a teaching of... of uh, Seasons, you know. There's a time for things, a time for a lot of energy, a time for bringing forth fruit, a time for resting, a time for letting it all stop, a time for picking up again, and that's the uh, the natural way of things. And we we very much override that in our way of living, and uh, certainly in the in the way that. The human race has, has kind of learnt to control nature, or b- b- believe that they can control nature, forgetting that we're actually part of it. You know, it's, it's like overriding the even the the nutrition that's in the ground. You know, just add fertilisers, put more in, take more out, get more more um, crops a year, and and uh, and also like in America the the, the, the Really, in my opinion, tragic clear-cutting of massive amounts of forest. And I understand. I come from a my father was a carpenter, so I grew up with wood uh, around me. And I understand that you know, wood is this building is here thanks to the trees, and uh, trees need to be cut and in order for this to happen. And they, you know, new trees grow, and it's a cycle. But we've we've come to the Point of of um, no longer being responsive to the cycle. So we're it's all about me. It's all about me and what will make me comfortable. What will make me not me personally, but me. What will make me wealthy? What will make me powerful? And with the, with the idea that that will be that will bring safety and security and comfort and. so you've got the the big corporate businesses going on like taking over the whole world really it's quite scary with no sense of um, long term vision or uh, even basic human sentiment basic responsibility, kindness, ethics and that all sort of goes out of the window and it all becomes this big uh, rush to get more better, bigger so uh, whether we're actually doing that ourselves or whether we're just watching it all going on we're all part of it, we're all influenced by that in some way and that's what happens when the mind is not understood so when the, what is known as the three poisons greed, hatred and delusion when they run riot this is what happens we we're, we're living in a society that that uh, is is showing us this is the result this is the result of running on greed on on hatred and on delusional confusion and fortunately there are many individual people who are not as, as lost in that who are, who are still in contact with the the goodness of the human heart and with generosity with uh, interconnection, kindness. Who, uh, from the roots up, are keeping the like keeping our higher potential alive? Because if we all followed what the the big businesses are doing, we really deeply lose touch with our true potential as human beings. And the Dharma is pointing to the, the natural way of things, so you know, everything that has a beginning, has a middle and has an end, and how you know, shared intention can come together to make something happen, something wholesome, something unwholesome, and, then, and we each receive the fruits of that action, you know, if we come together to make something good happen in the world then we receive the fruits of that. We receive the joy in the moment. We get to see what happens to that. We get to see the, the people it influences. Or the, the not just people, but you know, the environment, the creatures. that are influenced by, by wholesome action. And we can do that individually or we can do it collectively. Collectively is very powerful. Individually is very important. So the natural law... The natural law is uh, that we are not, as human beings, supreme. We are not ultimately in control of all this, but we are just part, we're just a leaf growing on the tree that will grow and be green and maybe some fruit will come and that will feed others and it will fall it will go back into the ground and be part of nourishing the tree on which we first grew. And that's how we are. We're, we're kind of borrowing this body for some time. And then what we do with that is really important. So one of the things I really love about the Buddha's teaching is that he brings together the ultimate teaching or the wisdom teaching of... Emptiness, you know, that ultimately all, all conditions are empty. You know, those, those leaves that have fallen will decay and become part of the earth and they will no longer be leaves. They won't be leaves yeah. soon, they'll just be part of the yeah. earth. So everything is like that. Everything that we, we take to be solid and real and, and uh, finite is, is in, a, in a state of flux, it's in a process. And so if you look at only at that side, then you see, well, so what's the point? It's all empty. It's all empty so I can do whatever I like. I'm not real anyway. I can do whatever I like. It doesn't matter. It's all just, you know, we're born, we live, we die. So what, you know? Let's just have fun then. Why not? All, all, all the time, you know? So it's a sort of understandable conclusion to come to and I think in the, in the Buddha's time there were actually people who you know, religious people who taught that you know, but so the Buddha understood the, both the ultimate and the relative teaching of the, or reality so ultimately nothing stays the same everything's changing nothing can deeply fully satisfy us for any length of time it can for a little while but not for a long period of time, not ultimately. No thing, no person, no relationship can give us that ultimate satisfaction. And then he also looked at the sentient, so ultimately everything's empty. And conventionally, here we are, human beings who feel, who respond to each other, who who manifest in the world who do different things in the world and what we do affects others so you know the Buddha gave the five precepts of not killing, stealing, uh, avoiding sexual misconduct uh, lying, and the use of intoxicants and the intoxicants is to support the other four, so that's about that's about not getting drunk stoned getting lost in in the delusory states, so that supports us to keep the other four. So if he, if he was just taking the ultimate view, you wouldn't bother saying about the five priests, it wouldn't matter. But because we are sentient beings, who are born into this world, who have this life, then it's important how we live it. And we can go through life just following gratification, you know, enjoying nice things, and it might seem like very harmless to do that. But then, if we look at, you know, where is this coming from? I always like to ask the question: What is the true cost? What is the true cost? There's always these hidden costs to these uh, very kind of instantaneous, instantly gratifying situations, or you know, cheap things or you know, nice situations. There's always somewhere somebody's paying for this. Very highly, or mm-hmm. maybe not somebody, but maybe actually the the earth itself is paying very highly for our comfort and our, um, you know, having what we want when we want. So, to to look at, you know, what what, what it, how am I living? You know, am I living in a way that's skillful? Am I living in a way that's that's benefiting myself and others? Is my understanding deepening? Am I am I growing wiser or more and more confused? So if you're a very confused person, be aware of confusion. I speak from experience. If you have a lot of confusion, bring awareness to confusion and that it starts to open it up. It starts to you start to see ah that's just like a cloud in the mind. It's not who and what I am. It's not ultimate, it's not Covering everything, there is also awareness, and the awareness is clear. If you have a lot of desire, bringing awareness to desire. So it seems like if we follow desire, then we'll be relieved from that that yearning. But uh, you know, I'm sure we've all had plenty of years of exploring this <laughs> already. You know, the, the reality is when we follow desire. We get gratification for a few moments or maybe even longer, and then another desire comes. So, following desire does not lead to the end of desire, it leads to more desire. It leads to more and more and more desire. And that can even lead to like a, a whole full blown addiction, which many people experience. And in fact, we all do, we're all addicted in some way. But uh, some people you know, it's, it's got so far that they can't get through a, a day anymore and, and need some help. and... Some of us, we all sort of agree together. Okay, it's all right to have this addiction. It's all right to have this addiction to sense pleasure, to uh, whatever it might be, you know, to to computer or TV or whatever, because it's not doing anybody any harm. But it's it's still a sort of it's it's losing ourselves in something. So, just to to recognise that that uh, following desire does not lead to the end of desire, and following Hatred leads to more and more hatred. So it, it sounds very simple and very obvious, and yet the, most of the world is operating on the opposite understanding. So you know, the Dhamma, one translation can be nature. And somebody once asked me, "Why don't you just translate Dhamma as nature if, that's, if that can be a, a translation?" And the danger in that is that we miss the, the subtlety of the meaning of dhamma. Because if we just say, oh, dhamma is nature, okay, nature, yeah, that's trees, river, mm-hmm. Got that. that? We miss it, so, but uh, dhamma is nature, meaning the true nature of the way things are. And because we so easily are lost in those, those obscurations of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, in their very base terms, because we can also call resentment, irritation frustration wanting fear all of those things It's not, I want to be really clear this is not about you shouldn't have them but it's about understanding these are obscurations of mind these are arising mostly these arise when the mind is not seeing clearly every now and again they're, they're happening because they're meant to be happening because we need to have fear because we've got to get away from a situation you know, that's the that's, uh, natural biological instinct, but much of the time it's connected with ideas in the mind, with thoughts and ideas and, and uh, we, we become lost in the the, the the kind of fabrications of our mind rather than actually seeing the truth of how things are. When we come into alignment with truth it's always here it's always in this moment. And so much of the time we're, we're in the thinking mind and we're worrying about the future, regretting the past, thinking about something that happened you know, that we wish was different. Or maybe there's a situation we have in there, maybe we've got bodily pain and you know much of our mind space is taken up wishing it was different to how it is. So the Dharma is, is bringing us into alignment with the way things are, and that isn't a passive state. It isn't just like okay, now I'm aligned with the way things are, so everything's just everything's fine, nothing matters. It's it's about it's got clarity, understanding, and when the mind focuses in this way, then energy comes through. And you know how we align our mind, how we intend our mind. It has huge repercussions. So if we habitually let our minds wander into anger, let's say, for example, because that's a big one for many people, especially when you're driving anger, then you might think, well, I'm not actually doing anything, and I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not actually physically hurting anybody, and so it's okay. But it isn't okay because you're actually letting your mind letting the grooves of your mind deepen in that in that way of anger so more and more there's a there's a deep groove that the river of anger can easily flow and even though you might now not be actually doing anything harmful to somebody or to anyone the more we let that, that flow then the more likely we are to cause harm through our speech and actions and you know equally if we cultivate intentions of kindness and generosity and well, wishing well for others and not just people we like you know but for everyone for all beings and not in, also not just in a generic way cuz it's easy to be it's easy to have loving kindness for all beings in a very generic way you can really get your heart going mm. but then you know can you have loving kindness for somebody who's irritating you can you have loving kindness when you're feeling a bit frightened Can you have loving kindness when the the self-doubt starts to come in? So it's uh, cultivating those wholesome qualities in our own hearts and minds. So that when challenging times come, it's all there as a resource for us. Because it's all here, actually. It's all here all the time. But we put our attention in the wrong places. We feed the wrong things. We feed in the stray dogs, and the stray dogs are coming around, and then we're getting frustrated that the dogs are messing everything up, you know. So uh, so a friend is saying, if you don't feed the dog, it doesn't come around. (laughs) It's like that with with anger, with uh, fear, with greed. But again, again we're tossing a little treat here and a little bit there. So learning how to to, you know not feed those those hounds that uh, pull us in the wrong direction. And to feed what is wholesome. It can take really a lot of effort, feeling what is wholesome. It's easier to follow our negative tendencies. I'm not uh, up on brain science or anything, but I know that, they, that um, people are finding now that, that uh, in terms of the neural pathways, and we you can correct me, if I'm not really very clear, but that to do some, a negative thought, it, uh, it kind of entrenches itself much, much more quickly than a positive thought. So we have to maybe ten times, ten times more cultivate the positive than if we cultivate the negative. So, you know, so it's much easier to kind of slide down the, the road or the river of negative thinking, critical thinking, fearful thinking, than it is to rise up to the, you know, the generous and confident, kind, compassionate way of being. And they say, you know, only you can, you can, you might even know it in your own life, you can do many good acts of goodness, and then it just takes one harmful act, one angry thought, angry action, and the whole thing's ruined. You know, somebody somebody doesn't, you've got a good friend, and suddenly you blast them, and then they don't trust you for the next ten years, you know. So, we have to be very careful. Yeah, these are called poisons, these, these qualities, and we all have them in us. So it's important not to judge or or feel it's not that they we are a greedy person, or we are, I am a confused person, but that these are poisons in the system that need to be cleared out. The more we can do that, you know, it's gradually, gradually clearing out those, those poisons. In fact, there's a, since we're in gold country, there's a the quote of the Buddha that I really love, where he says, Gradually, gradually, a moment at a time, the wise remove their impurities as a goldsmith blows away the dross. So it's like a lot of patience, a lot of heating up. And in our practice, it can be like that. It's like we're in a crucible. You know, we're being heated up in this container. And it can feel really like, whoa, it's too much. But in heating it up, in, heat, in, in, in containing ourselves and holding the the, chileses, the, the, the um, those poisons, not letting them spill out here, there and everywhere, just holding them in awareness. It's like, it's like heating up the gold. And as it heats up, the dross comes to the surface and we just keep on blowing it off, blowing it off, blowing it off, until eventually... You're left with pure gold. You know, we all have the same potential. We all have the same potential for fully awakening. And it might not feel like it. You might feel like, oh well, you know, maybe other people do but not me. And I certainly thought like that at one time. But it becomes clear over time. It's like, no, it's in all of us. It's our natural state. It's about returning to a natural state. So finding opportunities to cultivate what is wholesome. And I find it very important to hold the whole practice in a context of knowing that uh, well for me, I think different people lean towards different, different of the three characteristics, but for me impermanence is a very strong message that everything is changing. So, if something very strong, negativity arises in my heart, and I, or whether towards myself or towards others, then for a while it feels like this is me, this is who and what I am, and then I remember, all things are impermanent. So that's not. I'm not saying all things are impermanent. I'm going to get chuck it away, but then I can take an interest in it, because it isn't who and what I am anymore. It's something that's arising in the moment. And it's there. And if I breathe and pay attention, after a little while, it fades away. It breaks up. It's no longer solid. And I can see how there was a time when that felt really solid and real. And now it's not. It's just passed through. And then maybe it comes back again. Because, you know, the the gorge is deep. So maybe it comes back again and again. But the more we bring awareness to what's going on in our mind, the more we listen, actually, inwardly, to what is going on, then the more those obscurations of mind start to dissolve. And the less we are identified with them as who and what we are. And the more energy is freed up, Because there's a lot of energy in worry, there's a lot of energy in fear, there's a lot of energy in anger, there's a lot of energy in desire. And when we're freeing up that energy from those obscurations of mind, from those poisons, then it's it's here. The energy's here and we can use it for something good. We can use it for focusing our mind. We can use it for deepening our understanding. We can use it for giving, for generosity. We can use it for patience, to be patient with each other. So, you know, when we're lost in those poisons, we don't have the energy to put into the good. So, the meditation practice is a really important part of this, it's an important support. And uh, I mentioned the precepts already, that's like a container where we don't uh, spill out too far. We don't cause too much harm to ourselves or others by staying within those five precepts and also the practice of meditation. You know, this time in the world, it seems that there are very few people who live a simple life where there's lots of time for meditation practice. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that we are amongst those people. You'd be surprised at how busy our lives can be. But the the purpose of our life is for understanding and deepening the Dharma. We use everything for that. Everything that happens is for that. And an important part of that is is sitting in meditation. So we do each day, morning and evening, we come together, we chant, we sit, and we let the mind stop and deepen and listen. And we let things that are arising just end in their own time and then during the day quite often we're busy with many things duties and teachings and uh, meeting people and answering lots and lots of emails all of those things so we we do you know we're not uh, just sitting on our cushion all day uh, much as we would like to sometimes but we don't but it's keeping that orientation that this is for the practice so even the a really difficult interaction between two people. Okay, what what can I learn from this you know? between me and somebody? Let's say so something happens, and boom. What can I learn from this? You know? What am I doing that is creating, which is hurt in in myself and someone else through doing this? And then understanding, you know, follow, like tracing it back, getting back to the root of it, and then you know, do I want to follow this or not? No, I don't. And then. Learning how to, um, I wanted to say, root that out, but it takes time to root it out. So little by little, rooting that out. And I think in this world, you know, it's particularly in America, it is a self-professed consumerist society. You know, following consumerism. It's, it basically leads to a lot of craziness. It's, it does not lead to happiness. It appears that it would, but it really doesn't. And you know, we kind of take the, quite the kind of radical other extreme in that we're, you know, we live without using money of our own and uh, we live on the alms food that we're given and our main core... Purpose of our life is to practice the Dhamma and to share what we have with others as much as we can. Even it might, you know, sometimes when I look at the the, the way the world is constructed, in terms of the corporate businesses and politics and all that, and I just think, oh my goodness, you know, it is impossible. It is such a deadlock. You know, how is sanity and humanity? <laughs> we're we going to come through this but then you know it comes through individuals open their minds seeing doing something different working for what is good for what is wholesome for what is generous for what is wise you know so discerning that and and putting our energy consciously into that so we do our best you know through nuns in a house in San Francisco at this time. We do our best with that, and we're still learning. But uh, it feels really, really important at this time, at this, what feels to me like quite a crucial time in the world, that there are people doing this, that people are putting truth above getting what I want, having more. So... We only survive through connection with others who understand and also want to support this, to be be part of this. And we're a particular flavor, Theravada Buddhist nuns, maybe an acquired taste for some, I don't know. (laughs) But this is what our life is oriented to. It's oriented to waking up to what is true and to as, as far as we can, living from that place. And it's a it's an ongoing journey, really. You know, we're not as enlightened as we would like to be. We'd love to be, three of us, I'm sure, would all love to be fully enlightened, radiating loving-kindness to all beings, completely unperturbed by anything. We'd love to be like that. But we're not quite there yet. We might have moments, we have moments. But what we are committed to is really be honest with what is what is going on here and to uh, keep moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, moving in the direction of awakening. So, very glad that, uh, that you all come here and that you're all practitioners already, uh, kind of, Curious about your different paths, but we won't go into that now. But uh, you know, everybody here obviously has a a natural resonance with with what is true, and and I'm sure recognizes what I'm speaking about when I say that it's not an, always an easy path. You know, it does we do meet many challenges, but those challenges become food for our practice. They're not they're they're not in the way. The obstacles are the way, they're not in the way, as we said last night. So we have to remember that and, and embrace that and and also focus, you know, focus the mind. So if we never focus, we can still do good, but we, but nothing really ever comes of it. You know. Do a little bit good here, a little bit there. But if we focus then that, that's like a collecting of, of energies, collecting our attention, and also can be collecting people together. And then that can really you can have real breakthroughs through focusing. If, uh, if the mind's too scattered, then that never happens. And also you know, in terms of, of uh, how we live. So you know we, we lived in, as part of a big community in England, a big lineage, very well supported, and because of the circumstances there, we, we felt we couldn't actually carry on living there any, anymore because of certain dynamics between the, the monks and the nuns. And so, with a lot of focus, coming to America, you're going to start, okay, let's come over here where the doors open and see what happens. You know. And so far, We've been very fortunate, in the, you know, we've been supported. We've, we have a, a nice place that I mean, we've lived for four years. What we don't have is room to grow there. Our community doesn't have room to grow for you know more numbers. But uh, that's taken a lot of focus to, to keep that going. We each have our different qualities that we put in. You know, each of us have a a different part. You know, not it's not just one thing that makes it happen it's you know it's like a, it's a community so there's different elements that support that but uh, it takes focus and faith and persistence for this path and practice and also for you know to carry on living as as nuns in this world in the 21st century consumerist society it takes a lot of faith and focus so I can say for myself, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity and sometimes I feel quite amazed that it's possible to live as a nun in this day and age, and yet it is. And uh, I hope that what we, we do, you know, how we live and how, what we offer can be of real value to people, you know, it can be a support and, uh, and help to deepen your practice it 's not just about us and it 's not never just about me and my practice or well, that 's just the early days so it 's me and my practice and after a while you realize there is no me and my practice this is totally interconnected this is we 're all in this together so we 're here really to to share the teaching and mm-hmm. also just to say that we hold the intention and the wish to live somewhere in this rural area and make this opportunity available to others, to other women, to live as we do, and to others to come and be part of our monastery and and for us to be able to come and share the teachings. This is our wish, and of course we don't know if this is going to happen. And what we do know is that we can't make it happen on our own. There's no way. So the Buddha set up, the dynamic is set up in such a way that the monastic sangha are entirely dependent on the lay community. So we can't even grow our own food, we can't store money, you know, we, we we're like really, really dependent. And we share what we have. So we make best use of what we have and we share it as as much as we can. So that you know, the Buddha set set it up in that such a way that, so that we don't just go off and be hermits somewhere, which sometimes is a very attractive prospect. <laughs> you know, just to go and live in a little hut in the forest somewhere on our own and grow our veggies and maybe come out once a year, you know, we can't live like that. We must be in relation with you. And that's not such a hardship, I have to say. (laughs) It's quite lovely. (laughs) But, you know, the Buddha very clearly set the relationship in that way. So, you know, if we are to settle here, let's see if it happens, we can only do that in relationship with you. We can't do it on our own. We can't say, okay, we want to move to Plusville. Let's make it happen. No, we can. We can do so much, and then, then we have to trust. So we're all, you know, we're all in this together in the way as the human race. We're all in this together in this process of of life, and you know, seeing what we do with this with this life. But in the Buddhist teachings, you know, to have a human birth is seen as the most precious opportunity. It doesn't always feel like it. I, I doubted that for many years. How could be a human being be so precious? You know, it's painful, it's difficult, it's challenging. But then you see, like, oh yes, there's suffering and there's joy. There's struggle and there's delight. You know? And then when you practice and your attention deepens and you see the insubstantiality of all conditioned things, as you see that, as you notice that, and how all of these feelings and emotions that come through us, they keep coming through. They're not they're not fixed. They're not who and what I am. They're moving through their processes. The more we see that, then the more we find that freedom. And the more we find that freedom, then the more free we are to open up to the the bigger reality of our life, the inter-being. Because we're all affecting each other all the time anyway, consciously or unconsciously. So it's about making that conscious and choosing as much as we can, we can't choose it all, choosing what do we want to put out, what do we want to give, what do we want to manifest in this world.